This is Hurt with Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice, a conversation based on the book Hurt with Fetters, hosted by Pastor Greg Smith and author Jason Karsh. This is a podcast for people who want to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. Well, hello again. This is Pastor Greg Smith, and I'm here with author Jason Karch for another episode of Hurt with Fetters. I want to thank you for joining us, and let me say to you, Jason, it's good to see you again. Well, again, Pastor, I'm glad to be here. Excited about our reflection today. Yeah, today we're going to discuss uh, your ninth chapter of your book, and the title of the chapter is A Reflection on Atonement. Jason, I want you to begin just by defining atonement for us. I think that atonement can be defined in a couple of different ways. If we're defining atonement theologically, we're just thinking about the reconciliation of God and mankind through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I think theologically you define it that way. But if and, you and by the way, if I could just interject here, I'll never forget one of my theology professors in seminary wrote the word atonement on the board, and then he put a, a slash between the the, uh, the T and the O and the E and the M. At one month is kind of the way that he suggested that we think about it. We're made at one with God now, and, and it's what God has done through Christ that has brought us back into this into this relationship, a right relationship with God. We're made at one with Him, atonement. Yeah, you know, so theologically, built into the definition of that word is this idea of reconciliation, us being redeemed, bought back, reconciled back to God. So built into that. But if you just think And the debt is paid in full. And the debt is nothing left to do and it's gone. Absolutely. Absolutely. When it comes to the debt, the Bible says that our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west and they are remembered no more and but if just on a ground level thinking about how we define atonement I think we can just simply define it as a you know a satisfactory uh, reparation for an offense or an injury and you think about a satisfactory reparation that again implies that that's been satisfied the debt is paid there's a satisfactory payment for whatever the offense or the injury was. All right, so so from a theological perspective and and maybe even, you know, a step further to say from a Christian perspective, the atonement refers to what God has done for me to remove my sin, to make me right with him and the debt that I owed because of my sin, the wages of sin is death. There's nothing left for me to do. It is completely and totally satisfied. It's gone, right? So now from a human perspective, and I guess when we try to to think theologically in terms of the criminal justice system or what takes place uh, in justice, the question, I guess, becomes, is there any possibility or hope or way for atonement? From a human perspective, in particular in the way that we apply crime and punishment in this nation or in particular this state today? Well, I think we could do that, but we don't. 
you know, there is never a satisfaction. There's never a, a satisfactory uh, reparation for an offense or injury. But if you, if you get convicted of a crime and you get sent to prison, for example, we talk about you're paying your debt to society, right? And so, wouldn't theoretically, when you finish your sentence, your debt has been paid, right? Ideally, but that's not the case. I'll open the chapter by telling the story of my co-defendant who was arrested and charged with aggravated robbery, something she did not do. And so she sat in jail for roughly 10 months. That charge was dismissed and then she was charged with tampering with physical evidence. You know, they come around and they say, well, okay, didn't do the robbery, but we're gonna charge you with tampering with physical evidence because you hid the masks that were used in the robbery. Well, that wasn't the case either. And so she ended up being sentenced to two years in prison, long way discharged that sentence. And now, all these years later, if she were to apply for a job, apply for you know, residency at an apartment complex or whatever the case may be, where they do background checks, the first thing that pops up is not the felony conviction of tampering with physical evidence, but her arrest record of having been arrested for an aggravated robbery, even though she paid her debt to society, that is still held against her. Well, and so even, but in this particular case, she did not participate in the robbery. She was arrested for it because she was associated with you or the other guys, right? Yes. And then those charges were dropped, but if there's a background check on her, it still shows up that she was arrested for armed robbery. Yes. Even though the charges were dropped. Yes. All right. And then also on her record is this conviction for, uh, for tampering with evidence. She served full time, so she was sentenced to two years, she served two years, but the record is, is still there and she is a convicted felon and that will never go off her record, correct? Unless she's pardoned by the governor and that's expunged from the record somehow. I don't even know if that's possible, but even if it is, that rarely happens. So basically, in theory, what you're saying is the debt is never truly paid. Never truly paid. So Christians have been involved in the setting up of the criminal justice system, crime and punishment in this country or in this state. But in taking the theory of the atonement or, or the theological understanding of the atonement, how has that impacted the administration of justice or how, how has it how has it impacted or has it at all the criminal justice system? When you think about the, the development of like the harsher punishment of crime, particularly like Christian movements in the United States, how they have bought into this narrative that we've talked about in previous episodes, this current narrative of criminal justice, how not only have they bought into it, but in some ways they've contributed to it. And as this has built itself up, They've used certain theories of atonement to lend credit to the harsher punishment of crime. Some people will say that, well, look, God did not spare his own son. The punishment that was afflicted on Jesus in the crucifixion for sin, then why should we do any less in the face of offenses and transgressions of state and federal laws? Should we not punish those offenses and infractions 
in the same harsh way. And so on the heels of that, the role that that's played, now you have scholars and theologians who will look back on that and see the role that that's played and say, well, it's because of theories of the atonement like vicarious satisfaction or penal substitution uh, theories of atonement. They are responsible for the harsh punishment of crime in America, so we have to abandon those, adopt different theories of atonement so that we get out of this retributive mindset when it comes to punishing crime. I think that's a problem, though, on, so, on both ends of the scale. Okay, so on the one hand, or if you look at the two ends of the scale, so on the one hand, you've got those who would hold to the substitutionary theory of atonement. And just real quick, let's unpack that. What basically is the, the theological understanding of the substitutionary theory of atonement? Okay, Obviously, we're the sinners. We are the ones who have violated the law of God. We are the ones that rectification is due for these violations of God's justice, His righteousness, His holiness. We are the sinners. And there's a, there, there needs to be recompense for that. There needs to be satisfaction made for that. Well, because of the type of penalty required for that status we can't pay that we can't so there has to be a substitution something in our place to pay that debt well we could pay the debt with our life but we would not be reconciled to god right it wouldn't be enough so well so romans 6 23 the wages of sin is death right so all of sin and come short of the glory of god wages of sin is death so with your life, if you pay with your life, that's still not enough? That's all you got, and it's still not enough. And it's still not enough. And would that then, you know, argue for the existence of hell? So so for eternity, basically, separated from God now in hell, whatever hell looks like, fire, brimstone, however you want to consider hell, the basic thing, or the, or the big part of it to me seems like it's separation from God. So eternal eternally separated from God because the the debt cannot be paid. Cannot be paid. So by that, yourself. By yourself. So there has to be a substitution. Somebody has to pay in my place. And that somebody was Jesus Christ. Somebody He's, who is righteous, holy, sinless. Exactly. He paid the debt in my stead. So that's basically in a nutshell a substitution, a penal substitution theory of atonement. Okay, so on the one side you've got people who would accept that, who would say, since God spared not his own son, I mean, crime has to be punished. Sin has to be punished. Since he exacted this type of punishment on his own son, right. then yeah, there has to be a penalty. There has to be harsh penalties against violations or transgressions of the law. Okay. And so, if you do the crime, you have to fade that heat. Yeah, you got to do the time. You got to do the time. You have to. So, on the other end of the spectrum, then, are those who would say that substitutionary or satisfactory theory of the atonement is uh, not is not correct. Or I'm, I'm trying to think of the word. Uh, it's well, it's not commensurate with what we find in Scripture. This is what they're saying. They're saying, well, look. 
the way that we're punishing crime in this country, these harsh penalties, is not providing an opportunity for reconciliation, for restoration, for redemption. These types of penalties are not providing for that. And we see that any punishment in Scripture should open the door for restoration, reconciliation, redemption. This doesn't do it, so what do we blame? Well, we blame satisfaction theories of atonement or penal substitution theories of atonement for the exacting of these harsh penalties. Well, I think that's problematic as well. And so why would why would someone say or a theologian say no that the satisfaction or substitutionary theory of atonement is illegitimate? Well, I think it goes back to what we've discussed in our last our last two episodes where theologians make this distinction between the justice of God and the love of God. And when you separate those two things, you cannot see the atonement clearly. So on one end of the spectrum where people would say, well, look at the harsh penalty that God exacted against sin in the crucifixion of Jesus. That is the justice of God. Justice demands retributive punishment in this harsh way. These people on the other a scale look back and they say, oh no, we can't do that because God is love. A loving God doesn't punish sin in this way, so we have to do away with these theories of atonement so that we cannot articulate the justice of God in light of retribution that way. We have to figure out something else. So I think it boils down to on whichever end of the scale people fall on theologically, they're making a distinction between the justice of God and the love of God. They're not, separating those two things. Yes, they're not able to reconcile those things. And the most beautiful and pure place that they're reconciled is in the crucifixion of Jesus. How so? I mean, wh- how how do those how does how do love and justice go together or fit together? Well, if you look at Romans chapter one, right, you know where the Apostle Paul says, "You know, for I'm not ashamed." of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, for in the gospel, in the crucifixion of Jesus, the righteousness of God is revealed, the justice of God is revealed. And in the same way, God says that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Where did he give him at? On Calvary, in the crucifixion. So the perfect representation of the justice of God is in the crucifixion of Jesus and the perfect representation of the love of God is also in the crucifixion of Jesus. In Romans 5 8 for God demonstrates his love toward us in this while we were still sinners Christ Christ died and so you've got the justice and the love of God together so what you're arguing for is is this is not a either or but it's a both and. It's a both and. So the crucifixion of Christ or the substitutionary theory of atonement is that God took our sin and he put it on Jesus because he's just. He took our sin and put it on Jesus because he loves. Because he loves us. So he is so he loves and he's just all at the same time. Those two things are not separate. Those two things go together. They are related together. And we talked about the nature of justice being relational, the nature of love being relational. And so if if in the crucifixion you have this perfect representation of God's justice and the perfect representation of God's love, 
in this same place where the Bible also says that in the crucifixion of Jesus, God was reconciling the world back to himself. So the purpose of the crucifixion, the primary purpose of the crucifixion of Jesus was not to punish sin. That is a means to the end of reconciliation so that mankind can be reconciled back to God. And so for us, when we punish crime, punishment is not an end in itself. The purpose of our punishing crime should always be for the reconciliation of some man or some woman, some felon or offender to be reconciled back to the society that has been ultimately offended by their criminal activity. So if we were to take a proper hermeneutic or understanding of atonement from Scripture and apply it to the criminal justice system, there would have to be some possibility or potential of reconciliation or restitution or reorder. Redemption. Redemption. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I make the, the point in the chapter it's one thing to sit in a place like this and read theologians who quite possibly have never stepped foot inside a maximum security prison and they're theorizing about the effects of a vicarious satisfaction or penal substitution theories of atonement and how they've facilitated the harsher punishment of crime. Or these theologians, on the other hand, say, well, because satisfaction theories of atonement or penal substitution theories of atonement are responsible for the harsher punishment of crime, we need to get rid of those, we need to abandon those theologically. You know, they can talk about that, but from someone in my position, there has never been a more powerful or more motivating thing than... The first time I came across reading a vicarious satisfaction theory of atonement when I the first by time vicarious I, theory of atonement you mean Christ took my place took my place he he satisfied he substituted himself in my place and satisfied the wrath of God against sin for me you know the first time I read this when you read Cardell's homo you know why the God man in Anselm you read this this begins to speak to somebody in my position in a powerful way because of what Jesus did, I am made right with God. Everything I've done in the past has been redeemed. My life has been bought back. No matter how far away I ever got from God, I've been reconciled back to Him. The debt is paid. The penalty is satisfied. I'm free to relate rightly to God now. That's a powerful, powerful thing for somebody who understands fully that in the eyes of society, the debt will never be paid. Well, there's a higher authority than society, and there's something comforting about that. And so that's resonated with me in a, in a powerful way, and I think that theologians who have never sat on this side of the fence haven't really thought through these things. I think that's a powerful and wonderful understanding for really anybody who understands the the depth of our own sin, that uh, that we have all not only have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, we have violated the holiness of God and we have offended the nature of God and we are 
children of wrath or we stand condemned before God because of our own sin, completely and totally helpless and hopeless to do anything. But God, who is rich in mercy and love, gave his son Jesus to to take my place. I don't know that anybody who completely understands all that can keep from just falling down before God in, in worship and, and thanksgiving and uh, just responding to the grace of God, which is what salvation is. A person is saved by coming to that place where they recognize that what Christ did on that cross he was doing for me. I deserved to die. He died in my place and all I can do is to respond, to receive it and say thank you. And in that salvation, I am made clean, right with God. That is a powerful, powerful thing for anybody, but I can see especially for somebody who every moment of every day is told, your debt will never be paid. It will never be paid. But we still have law, we still have crime, we still have punishment, and we've got the love of God. How, let's, go a little bit further how are those things really related together the law the wrath of God the love of God how are these things connected I guess in the personhood and the relational personhood I think as you would articulate of God again you know we've talked about justice how justice through the lens of Christian theology anyway, I think has to be understood relationally. We articulate justice in terms of equity. Well, equity between what? You have a relational balance there. And so it's the same way with love. Love is a relational concept and the law of God is governed by love. So I make the statement in the chapter that for the Christian, love is the primary presumption for the practice of justice, and true justice cannot exist apart from love. And I think for us to understand how these things come together, how is the practice of justice, the practice of love, the existence of law, how do these things come together? I think the place that we can never take our eyes off of when understanding that is in the crucifixion of Jesus. And in that, we can see that God, he doesn't abandon justice or the rule of law in favor of his love. And he didn't abandon love, you know, in the execution of his justice. This is the perfect place where all of these things come together in a, in a pure and powerful and clear way. And I think that, obviously, we're sinners. You know, so something has happened so that this demonstration has to be made. You know, where all of these things come together. And one of the things that's always fascinated me is when I first became a Christian, I didn't have access to any television or anything like that. So the first four years of my Christianity, I haven't ever seen movies or anything like that. But I had read several articles about Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ and how some people said well, that's too much, it's too brutal or... You know, some people say it's a faithful representation of what Jesus experienced. Some would say that, well, really, you know, he experienced more brutality than what was depicted in the movie. And so when I finally saw that movie, I guess people respond to that in different ways. But I remember when they 
depict Jesus as carrying the cross on the Via Della Rosa. And Mary is running through the city trying to find him. And so I think it's John that's with her. You know, they're running together. And so when they come through this one little alley, they catch a glimpse of when he falls. And so he's trying to get back up. And it's almost as if he senses his mother there. He looks up and he tells her, Behold, I make all things new. And I remember just being moved by that statement. And so in Revelation 21, that's basically what, what happens when the justice of God, the law of God, and the love of God are all come together in this one place in the crucifixion of Jesus. All things are made new. And I'll make a point in the chapter to emphasize the word that is used there. It's not something that is new, like in a brand new sense. There's a, there's a Greek word that conveys that idea, that carries that idea. It's the word that really carries the idea of a renewal of something that had gone before. So there was a time in human history where humanity was right with God, that we lived in a way where we didn't have to make distinctions between the justice of God, the law of God, or the love of God because of sin. And so that is what Jesus did in the crucifixion. He brought all of these things together that we have a, a unhealthy habit of making distinctions between, brought them together in a perfect place, in a perfect way, so that this renewal uh, can happen and we can be reconciled back to God. So so God reconciles us to himself. That That's certainly... You know the the testimony of Scripture, but you know also I guess when we, when we talk about law and and so part of the question uh, and and just for our listeners I, I want you to articulate because the Apostle Paul says in that passage in Romans he says before the law came I didn't know sin, then the law came and I died because sin brings death right, so from God's side why not just why does there have to be law I guess. If, if what you want to do is just is just reconcile, just be reconciled to me and let me, I suppose, do whatever I want to do. Why, why is that not possible? Well, I think the Apostle Paul is using law in a very specific way because he goes on to talk about, I didn't know what it was to covet. So he's, he, in his reference to the law, he's referencing specifically the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And in our episode where we talked about the law, a commandment or the law of God existed prior to the revelation of the Ten Commandments on Sinai. So when God told Adam, don't eat of this tree, that's a command, that's a law. You know, there's a legal aspect to that because in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And I think the reason for which God gave the command was not to be an authoritative dictator or whatever he did it because he loved Adam because he knew that in the day you do this Adam bad things are going to happen and I love you and I don't want bad things to happen so don't do this so I think the emphasis is always love so I just want to remind ourselves that law is an expression of God's love it's not an expression of his uh, wrath or hatred or his tyranny his <laughs> his tyranny and and God is not arbitrary in that way but this leads me to, uh, you know, also to the doctrine of sin, our original sin in particular, which is not a popular theological uh, stance 
today. I'm okay. You're okay. I'm really not that bad. Okay, I'm not uh, okay. I not perfect, but but have I really done anything to? So if I covet my neighbor's property, his boat, for example, what's the big deal with that? Why do I stand condemned before God for my sin when I'm really not? Hey, committed murder. I never killed anybody. I never robbed a bank, right? So it's not that big of a deal what I've done. Why do I stand guilty before God? I mean, for me to think of myself as totally depraved or as a sinner is, is not really something that I really want to think about or deal with. Well, I think that was just as popular in the first century. You know, people having creative ways of justifying themselves. I think that's why Jesus did what he did in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you have read, you shall not murder. But I say, if you have you become angry with your brother, then you've already committed murder. If you have read, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, so they haven't really thought through the implications you know, of the law. And then for those of us, you know, yeah. And we talked about in our episode where we dealt with original sin. Yeah, that's probably one of the most unpopular of Christian doctrines today. But it, I think it's one of the most empirically verifiable ones. We did. I, I bring it up because it, it, you make a point here that we have a tendency, we meaning us human beings, we have a tendency to read into Scripture what we want to. You know, the, the word is eisegesis. Or, or we, let our, we let modern culture or we let our own um, biases or whatever influence our interpretations of biblical doctrine. And I'm not sure that uh, some major theologians have not done the exact same thing, right? And you, you point out several of them, uh, you know, in this particular chapter that uh, basically come to the place where we've got to discard the substitutionary theory of atonement because it doesn't jive with our modern sensibilities. Yeah. It's kind of like Luther said, when we come to the scriptures, we come with a whole bag of goods. Yeah. And we let that color the way we we look at it. So, so ultimately, I think, and, and just to kind of wrap up this part of our discussion, I, I'm, as I was thinking through this of, of what you were arguing here, that that our rejection of the substitutionary theory of atonement—that is, on either side—if we, you know, on, on whichever uh, end of the spectrum we fall off—ultimately, we are rejecting the authority of Scripture. Absolutely. And, you know, we talked about how in our reflection on place, that ultimately the place where the Christian stands is the Word of God. In the Scriptures, the narrative that the Scriptures give us, and if we abandon that, then we're standing in some other place. We're allowing some other story to shape the way that we understand the world, how we relate to others, the understanding of how we relate to God. Yeah, so I think bottom line here is, is, is that if as God's people or as Christians we're going to think about the criminal justice system from a, or if we're going to come at it from a Christian perspective or a theological perspective, we've got to begin with the Word of God. And we've got to let, we've got to let Scripture interpret us or we've got to let Scripture speak to how we feel about these things, how we address these type of issues. So Jason, if we... 
again, if we, if we examine law of God, our own sinfulness, justice, the atonement, vicarious satisfaction, all those things, you know, we look at one of the, you know, one of the things I think that we have to, to deal with or consider is this concept of the wrath of God and how, you know, does, does understanding God as a God of love and law being a, a response of God's love for us and even justice being part of the love for us. But then if, if we get to the punishment phase of the crime and we see Christ nailed to a cross and dying in our place, and the Apostle Paul says the wrath of God is poured out upon all sin. And so we understand that Jesus is the theological word propitiation or expiation. He either receives it all, all of the wrath for us, or he covers us so that the wrath of God is deflected from us. But how in the world can, can we understand you know, the love of God and wrath of God together? How do those work? How can wrath be an expression of God's love? I think, you know, we have you know, we have certain understandings of what wrath is. And early in the, the late 19th, early 20th century, you have theologians who begin to reject this idea of propitiation. The idea that a God of wrath needs to be satisfied by some means of penalty or punishment because again in their minds that's not commensurate with the love of God but I think that that is lending our experiences with anger or wrath or whatever and we're reading those understandings of wrath into the New Testament narrative and I think the wrath of God I, you know I try to be careful to define that here ultimately the goal of God's wrath is restoration so wrath is not something that is purely punitive it's restorative you know so even in his wrath there's something good about the wrath of God for us for the sinner for the person that deserves that wrath so there's still something good there and if I give a guy here that summarizes Anselm's understanding it says in the God man in Jesus within human history God's justice and mercy are shown to be one thing one action life and being the righteousness that condemns is also the love that restores so the same place that the justice of God is revealed the same place that the love of God is revealed is the same place that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So even in the wrath of God, there's a restorative element, a redemptive element in the wrath of God. But some people would argue, you know, that if you read the New Testament, that you really, I mean, so Old Testament, God is a God of wrath. He's a sinner's in the hands of an angry God, Jonathan Edwards, you know I mean? So he's punishing sin and he's mad at people and everything else like that. But when you get to the New Testament, that's not really what you see. I mean, in Jesus, you see this, this guy who says, who are those who condemn you? Neither do I go and sin no more, right? So is there a, a dissociation between God of Old Testament and God of New Testament? Is wrath just an Old Testament concept and love more the New Testament concept? Let's just think about Romans chapter 1 again. We talk about Romans chapter 1 where 
The gospel is the power of God, for in it the righteousness or the justice of God is revealed from faith to faith, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. And then it had there's a in most Bibles there will be a in English translations there'll be a, a paragraph break. But Paul's thought doesn't break there. For in it the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. So it's one continuous thought. This gospel that is the power of God to those who believe is the place where the righteousness or the justice of God is revealed. And it's also the place where the wrath of God is revealed. So if there's a distinction between how God expresses himself in the Old Testament and how God expresses himself in the New Testament, I think the ultimate expression of who God is in his person is borne out through what took place in the crucifixion of Jesus. And Paul makes it very clear that the wrath of God was present in the crucifixion of Jesus. But not as an end in and of itself. It was for the purpose of reconciling the world back to himself. Well, and also, it's very difficult for us to separate wrath from emotion. If I'm mad at you and I want to hit you in the face, for example, if I want to do something to you, those go together. If I talk about the wrath of God, I have a tendency to think, well, God's mad at me. And I've even had you know people tell me, well, I think God's mad at me. Because I you know, told a liar, I did whatever, right? I didn't do, you know, I didn't do something, or I did do something. So God's mad at me. But the wrath of God is not a. I was going to say arbitrary, but that's not necessarily the, the word I'm looking for. But it, maybe it communicates. It's not an arbitrary aspect of God's being. I mean, it, it's not related to how God feels. No, it's right? not how it's not how He feels. I don't even think it's how He thinks. You know, I'll quote a Haeckel in here where he says that it's not a psychological fact, but an ontological reality in the person of God. We don't project our conceptions of wrath in emotive ways or, you know, how we tend to think about wrath. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. So we can't fully get our minds around that. But I think that we can be confident that even in God's wrath, the purpose of which he expresses his wrath is for restoration and redemption. So if that's a reality, you know, of God's wrath, and I'm trying to figure out how do I take these theological realities or the, these theological constructs and, and apply them to criminal justice system or even my understanding of criminal justice system. So, you know, as we said earlier, on the one hand, if I view the substitutionary theory of atonement as the crime has to be paid for in full. And so if you do the crime, I can't substitute for you in this sense. Christ can. You can be saved. Still, the harsh punishment must be inflicted because that's the only way it's going to really be, it's going to really be satisfied. So if that's not the reality, then how do I take these, you know, these truths, the law of God, the justice of God, the holiness of God, the wrath of God, the love of God, all of these things that relate together in the person of God or who he is. And then, so what I want to do is I want to take them and make that the foundation, the basis upon 
how I view criminal justice system, how does it change the way I, I look at the way crime is punished in this country? I think foremost, we have to get out of our minds that this is ultimately a punitive question. Well, we're asking questions about the punishment of crime. Get out of our minds the concept that this is ultimately a punitive question and fully embrace this idea that the question we're really asking is a, a restorative one. You know, how is it that through the punishment of crime can a person be restored, reconciled back to society and have an, an opportunity for redemption? Well, that actually leads us to the next chapter, a reflection on punishment. So we're going to pick that up next time. And what I think is important for us to hold on to as we kind of seg into, all right, punishment itself. This is, this is what is taking place, what should take place. And I would just preface maybe this next chapter with you're not suggesting that commit a crime that you should not suffer some type of consequences or some type of punishment, but we can use that word, but that it must be tempered based upon, for a child of God anyway, in the way that we approach this, it should be tempered in the way that we understand the personhood of God, His love, His wrath, His justice, His law, all of these things form the foundation upon which we view crime and how it is adjudicated. Well, Jason, um, you actually conclude this chapter with uh, just a reminder that we ultimately come back to that one verse of Scripture that everybody turns to at a time like this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life, that the love of God is not denied by the substitutionary reality of Christ dying on the cross, it is actually verified and demonstrated. And by that, we are reconciled or made one again with God. We are atoned for. And thank God for it. And thank God for it. Well, listeners, thank you for joining us today. We pray God's blessings upon you, and we look forward to sharing with you next time as we consider the punishment of crime itself, a reflection on punishment. God bless you. Take care. Hopefully this has been encouraging while also challenging you to think through these issues in a new or more concrete way. Listen next time for our conversation on further theological reflections on criminal justice. Thanks for listening to Hurt with Feathers, a podcast that helps us to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. The book Hurt with Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice is available at Amazon.com.